right. Good evening. Thank you for braving the hot air in here, like usual in the summer. Um, I was just telling Jack, Jack, Zach beforehand, Jack's my son, my four-month-old, not Zach, our worship leader, um, that uh, I probably probably should have thought through. I was down in uh, Orlando this last week at an uh, uh, organization we're part of, Acts 29. They had a global gathering. There was uh, 1,300 people there. Probably half of them were church planners, uh, like myself, um, and uh, their wives or staff, and uh, from uh, 45 different countries. Uh, represented, and it was really a great time. I'm going to talk more about that in a couple couple weeks, but I was talking with one one pastor who has a, a large building that doesn't have AC, and he was like, oh yeah, in the summer, man, we cut a few songs, only preached for 15, 20 minutes, and I was like, oh, that would probably be wise. <laughs> uh, I have not done that uh, for the last two years, so maybe uh, maybe next year uh, we'll figure that out. So um, Anyways, welcome. Those of you who don't know me, my name is Brian, uh, pastor here at Lower Town, and uh, primary responsibility is here and, and uh, shepherding uh, all of you, and, and I love you all and appreciate you all. And um, anyway, so a couple things that are coming up. So uh, on August 25th, um, we again are switching to 8.45 a.m., not 6 p.m. So again, you, you come in here, uh, there will be people in here, but they won't be speaking English. They're uh, the Burmese Christian Church that meets here usually at 2 o'clock. They're going to be meeting at 6 p.m. or at least 5 o'clock, and they'll, they'll definitely still be in here. Um, they are actually glad that they're moving back to their normal time. Before we showed up, they, um, just their culture, they, they come in here at like 2 and, and then they stay, you know, we were, we were kicking them out at five to get in here to try to set up and that kind of thing. And, and they just weren't used to that. So they'd go into the gym and they would just keep the party going down there and eat together and that kind of thing. So they're, they're excited to be able to not get kicked out of here uh, and that kind of thing. So um, on, on that same note, though, on September 8th, if you have your little handout, if you got that when you came in, on the backside, there's announcements and that kind of thing. Um, one really big, important announcement is that on September 8th, uh, which, again, will be in the morning, that is kind of the day that we're... Um, telling the community in the neighborhood with mailers and flyers and yada, 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 that we're going to be starting our morning service, kind of a relaunch, if you will, on September 8th. But on September 8th, after the service, um, we're going to be going to this, this kickoff up at uh, Snail Lake. We, we usually have our outdoor baptisms twice in the summer. We've decided we're just going to have one big giant party for, uh, right now there's just two locations, but again in, in January, January, end of January, early February, adding a third location up in Columbia Heights. So we want to be able to do something all together as a church and have different ministries do different things. Well, we, or I, have volunteered 20 of you to cook all of the food uh, for a good, you know, a thousand people. So uh, I need your help because I already said you're going to do it, okay? So if you need help with that, uh, or if you can help with that, if you're able and willing, please talk to me, email me, brian at hopecc.com. So we need um, almost probably about 20 volunteers. I'm hoping to have some cool t-shirts made for us. We can represent Lower Town. Um, and uh, let downtown know that uh, we love them and we care for them and want to serve them as well. There's a lot of things. So for families, there's going to be games and a lot of games and uh, games. I'm trying to come up with the word for it. Um, bounce houses, that's what I'm thinking of. And a lot of other different things. There's a climbing wall I think they're renting. They were talking about doing one of those uh, bull, bulls, B-U-L-L, bull, you know, riding bull. Uh, but I don't know if they're going to do that or not. Anyways, it's going to be a lot of fun, and it's not that far of a drive. And again, we're going to be done with church at 10 o'clock, so it's nice and easy. 10 o'clock, we get in our car, we drive up to Snail Lake together, we cook some burgers, we eat the burgers, and we have fun. Okay, it's that simple. All right, that's that. All right, we have been in a series called, Hey, I Have a Question. This is week six. Um, I took last week off, which I'm going to talk because I was in, or in Orlando, but I'm going to talk a little bit more 
of uh, why and who fills in for me when I'm gone uh, tonight, okay? And so uh, we looked at this five weeks ago. Uh, this is the, 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 the sermon that kind of ties into everything. Is the Bible a reliable guide for my life? And so a couple weeks ago, looking at uh, the creation and the age of the earth and all those different things and science and, and, and origin of life, well, is the Bible a reliable guide for my life, okay? Because if the Bible is not reliable, if it's not authentic, if I can't take it at its word, well, then what are we doing? All right, we're wasting our time. And so if I just dropped a bomb and you're like, how old is the earth? Guess what? We don't know. Okay, so uh, let me just put that out there. Okay, but you can listen to that online if you're interested in that. Um, so looking at that, the Bible, we have to take that at face value. We have to take it at God's word, that it is inspired. It is breathed out by God and is profitable for doctrine and correction and reproof. And so in everything. Okay, and so we're going to be looking at some, at some passages tonight that honestly are, are quite difficult uh, for men and women, uh, but the question that, that we got as pastors is, is this, what is complementarianism? I'll talk about that, it's a big, big word, and how does it function at Hope Community, okay, and specifically uh, our church. This is, this is a, a larger, broader conversation for any church, really. They all have to wrestle with this, and this really is if I were to boil it down, what is a woman's role in the church? And depending on your background, uh, you're going to hear different things when it comes to this. And this is a, a topic, a message that is incredibly controversial. Um, as elders, we have a quite, a quite a large paper document on complementarianism and how we view women's roles in the church and at home. And so if you are interested in that, it's online. It's on hopecc.com, I believe. I'm pretty sure you can find it on there if you dig around Look around for it. It's there. If not, ask me. I can send it to you. So uh, I'm not, unfortunately, I'm not going to spend a lot of time talking about complementarianism when it comes to uh, uh, male and femaleness because we did this just a couple months ago in First Peter. When we were in First Peter chapter 2 or chapter 3, right at the beginning of chapter 3, it says in the same way, do marriage, right? In the same way. And so we, we talked about complementarianism. And so there's four major views out there, okay? So if you grew up going to church, they held some kind of view of this issue of, of men and women, uh, whether that's at home or in the church, okay? And so, and, and they're, they're broader categories. There's kind of subcategories within that. We could say I'm a conservative complementarianism or I'm a liberal complement. I don't think that's a word. I don't, I don't know. I, just bear with me. And th let me say this too. I have studied this a lot, and not just for this message. This has been a topic that, culturally speaking, is a really big topic. And so I've written, I've written, I have not written any books on this. I've read many books on this. I've, I've, I've written many papers on this topic. Um, it's something that I need to be able to, as a pastor, um, uh, speak what I believe in this matter without hesitation and have conviction on this and yet grace. Which we'll, which we'll look at. So I would just ask you to give me some grace. If you feel like, holy cow, man, there was a huge gap there. I didn't really understand that. Please just talk to me. Uh, shoot me an email. I would love to talk with you more about it if, if there's any confusion in this at all. Um, but again, I'm not going to talk specifically. I'm going to go over briefly these views. But if you want more information on that, you can go back online and listen to this sermon on 1 Peter chapter 3, 1 through 7. So, that fair? Give me a little bit of grace. I love you, I care for you, I promise, um, and we're going to dig into this. Okay, so there's four views. The first one is this patriarchal, patriarchal view, uh, or hierarchical view, or traditional view. 
Uh, this would be in, in really conservative types of churches and maybe homes that we would say just, just traditional, right? Leave it to beaver kind of a home, right? The dad does everything that's outside with lawnmowers and the cars and grills and that kind of thing. But the mom, right, she's inside taking care of the kids, washing dishes, doing laundry, okay? That's a traditional view. And, and unfortunately, that view has then said men are superior to women, all right? That, it, that there's something about a man and his makeup, that the way that he thinks and acts, that he actually is, is better, right? He's over women, all right? That is a traditional viewpoint. Um, yeah, I'm going to leave it there. Okay, moving on. The opposite side of that, the other view of that, other side, would be the evangelical feminist or radical feminist, where they would, in that sense, say, no, it's actually the, the opposite, Right, that if that if, that women should be in charge of, of all the things, right? Women should be uh, running for president. That kind. Of, I mean, imagine if every country had a woman as a president, there would be no world wars. Okay, that's that. And they're probably right. Okay, but we're going to talk about separation of church and state in this uh, sermon as well. Okay, but we're talking about the church and at home that they would say no, women need to be in charge. Okay, that's those are the two extremes of that. The other views that would probably be more in the center where we would uh, uh, probably rub shoulders with and, and, and talk with people more along in that side is this, an egalitarian view. Egalitarian view would say that men and women are equal, period. All right? that, that anything a man can do, a woman can do, and anything a woman can do, a man can do. There obviously is room on there when it comes to just biology, right? A man can't give birth. Uh, men are typically stronger naturally, um, and so they're not saying, right, but they're saying, no, but no, but, but we're equal here. And that anything that we get, the Bible says, right, that, that, that maybe some things and wordings of it, maybe it's, 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 it's just for the culture in the first century. It's not for now that, that anything that a man can do within the church or at home is also what a woman is able to do and capable of doing in home. All right, that's, that's that view. I didn't, I'm not going to, again, go into all the details of that and the pros and cons and biblical views of that. Not, that, was, that was months ago, Okay. The final view where we would be is complementarian view, all right? That we believe that male and female are created differently, that they are equal in dignity, value, and worth, yet different. They're equal but different. That men have certain strengths, and I would say in some aspects of our lives that there is male headship and the other aspects, but, there's, but, the, but the male can't do his role without a woman, it's, and and I, hope that, I hope that we can see that tonight as we dig into the passages and dig into the scripture and hopefully give some clarity on, I think, uh, on 1 Timothy chapter 2 that has been used in a very harmful, hurtful way to women um, and hopefully give some clarity on what that passage is really all about. So I want to quickly go through a couple, not quickly, it's actually going to be the whole rest of the sermon, but we're going to go through these. <laughs> I don't know why I said that. What does it mean to be a man or woman in the way that God designed us to be? Men and women are ontologically equal, okay, in, in our makeup, right? Look what I said, in our dignity, value, and worth, there is equality there, right? Men are not superior, women are not superior, men are not smarter, women are not smarter, right? Depends on the man, depends on the woman, right? My wife is smarter than me, right? She has a GPA to prove it, right? I think I've told you that before. Like when I met her in college, my GPA went up like a point and a half, right? Because she was, I knew she was smart and I knew I had to get better grades or she was going to leave me. Um, she walked out. See, she didn't even hear that compliment. I don't know if it's a compliment or not, but all right. Here, how do we know this? Okay, Genesis chapter one. Then God said, let us make man in our image 
In our likeness, let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock and all the earth, over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man or mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Mankind, male and female, he created them. That both male and female image their creator. They reflect who their creator is. They're equal in dignity, value, and worth, and yet they're different. And we're going to see that even in the Genesis account. And as we look at the New Testament authors referring to the Genesis account, when we look at this idea of complementarianism, Galatians chapter 3, 26 to 28 says this, you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Isn't that sexist? Right? Sons, but what if I'm a woman? Why, why does he say you are all male and female? He's addressing the church. Why are all male and female sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus? This here is actually a beautiful image of equality, especially coming from a first century author, from the Apostle Paul. Because back then, the only people who got an inheritance, who got anything from their parents, was the son. The oldest son got all the stuff. And what he's saying here, it doesn't matter if you're male or female. It doesn't matter if you're the firstborn or the lastborn. You are all sons. You are all receiving a beautiful inheritance of God. How? Through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you were baptized into Christ, uh, who were baptized into Christ, have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave or free, male or female, you are all one in Christ Jesus, right? This is this idea that we are all in our makeup, dignity, value, and worth the same. Moving on. Men and women, though, however, are functionally different. And again, what we have to do, and I'm going to bring this up again later on, when we look at some of these texts and we look at the New Testament, it cannot simply be that was just first century, where let's just, that was just a cultural thing, let's just throw it out, because those authors always go back to the beginning. They always go back to the created order of male and female. And so when we look at the functional differences between men and women, it all derives from the narrative that we have in Genesis. So Genesis 2, and I've got a couple of verses here. It says, The Lord God formed man out of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living being. Now, Yahweh God had planted a garden in the east in Eden, the Garden of Eden. And there he put man that he had formed. And then Yahweh God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. That was man's responsibility, that he would till it, that he would work it, that he would take care of this garden, of this land, of this place. And Yahweh God said, it is not good for man to be alone. Right? There, there's something about you that should not be alone, that you need something else to complete who I am. I want you to image me, but right now something's not quite right. I will make a helper suitable for him. So Yahweh, God, caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed uh, up the place with the flesh. This is actually kind of cool. This is going back two weeks when I was looking at the creation story. I didn't have time to get into this. But um, a better word for this isn't just a rib. Uh, he actually took the man's side, right? Like just, I'm going to take half of you away because you're incomplete and I'm going to make you complete with woman, all right? So, so he closes up the flesh, and then Yahweh God made a woman from his side and had, that he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. 
And the man said in poetic fashion, as he sees his beautiful bride, he says, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. So we can look at these two different image bearers of God that are equal in dignity, value, and worth and say functionally, genetically, they're, they're, they're made up differently in their functions between man and woman. I'm gonna let, uh, this is uh, Mary Kassane uh, in her book, uh, Complementarianism for Dummies. Uh, she, says, she says this. Essentially, a complementarian is a person who believes that God created male and female to reflect complementary, complementary truths about Jesus. That's the bottom line meaning of the word. Complementarians believe that males were designed to shine the spotlight on Christ's relationship to the church and the Lord God's relationship to Christ in a way that females cannot and that females were designed to shine a spotlight on the church's relationship to Christ and Christ's relationship to the Lord God in a way that males cannot. Who we are as male and female is ultimately not about us. It is about testifying to the story of Jesus. We do not get to dictate what manhood and womanhood are all about. Our creator does. That's the basis of complementarianism. If you hear someone tell you that complementarity means that you have to get married, have dozens of babies, be a stay-at-home housewife, clean toilets, completely forego a career, chuck your brain, tolerate abuse, uh, watch Leave it to Beaver reruns, bury your gifts, deny your personality, and bobblehead nod yes to everything men say, don't believe her. That's a straw man or straw woman misrepresentation. That's not complementarianism. I should know I'm a complementarian and I helped coin the term. All right, she's an expert on this, right? And I think what she's talking about, right, those traditional views, this is what it means. And so there's some things, right? All women know you need to stay at home, right? The husbands are the head of your house and, and as a, at the church, right? The elders are over the women and that's uh, not what we're saying. That's not what complementarianism is. The functional difference does not mean inferiority, and we have to remember this. It does not mean inferiority. The passage that uh, Ben read, and I've got a couple more verses here. This, this is beautiful. We see here that Jesus submits to the Father. There's other passages where he literally says that Jesus submits himself to the Father in the Garden of Gethsemane. He says, God, Father, not your will be done, uh, not my will, excuse me, not my will be done, but your will be done. And he submits again to his Father, even in his death. So Philippians 2, 5 through 11 says, Your attitude, all of us, should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, the creator of the universe, the beginning and the end, right? The, the, the word who was there in the beginning, who was with God and is God and sustains all of creation, did not Consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave Jesus the name that is above every other name, and that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of of God the Father. Submission or 
this functional aspect is not inferiority. Jesus submits to the Father. It doesn't mean that Jesus is inferior to the Father. It doesn't mean that when uh, the Holy Spirit waits for Jesus to command and that the Holy Spirit would obey, that when the Holy Spirit submits, it doesn't mean the Holy Spirit is inferior to Jesus or to the Father. Let me uh, explain this in, in maybe our language that's not Trinitarian, right? Because that's, that's that is a difficult concept to grasp. Um, I'm, I'm going to use me for an example because I work at a church, um, right? That, uh, did you guys know that? Um, I have a boss, right? I, I'm not the boss. I'm not, I'm not the big dog, right? He calls himself big dog. I don't know if you knew that or not, okay? Now, I love my boss. I love Steve Treichler. He's a godly man. I look up to him whether it comes to theology and just his ability to, to lead a group of people and lead a large church and lead a large staff and cast vision well, I really, really appreciate my boss. And yet, could I do his job? I don't actually think I could. Right? That's me personally. I think that if he just, you know, hey, I'm done, here you go, it'd be, it'd be really difficult. And yet, not one time in my, in in an ounce of my job, my five years of being at Hope, have I ever felt inferior to Pastor Steve? Not one time. When we look at our pastoral staff, and I think of Pastor Kaur, who's a phenomenal communicator, and he, again, I think I've, I've, I've used this a billion times here at Lower Town, right? He just oozes grace, right? The guy is just, you just gotta love Pastor Kaur. No one's been like that Kaur guy, right? Doesn't happen, doesn't happen. And yet, Pastor Core has never spoken down to me. Even though when you look at the org chart, right, I'm nowhere near the top. But nobody speaks down. It's not an inferior thing. It's just a status thing that I submit under their leadership. Scripturally, uh, excuse me, next thing here, this, the functional difference is something to be followed and celebrated within the church. There is a functional reality within maleness and femaleness and male headship within the church that should be celebrated in the church. And so again, I, I know this can be touchy, but I want to I dig into this. I want to talk about this. So let me just read the passage that I'm going to spend the remainder of the time on in 1 Timothy chapter 2. And I'm skipping a couple verses. You can read it if you want. Just for time, I decided to skip that. It really has everything to do with women, when they show up to church, uh, don't dress like a prostitute. Okay, that's what it means. Okay, don't, don't draw attention to your body saying, hey, you, you want me, you can have this. That's literally what it's saying. All right. It says this in, in uh, chapter 2 of 1 Timothy. It says, I urge then, first of all, oh yeah, this is really important too. In the context here, 1 Timothy is Paul giving direction to Timothy, an elder of the church. And he's saying, this is how your corporate meetings, this right here, our Sunday gathering, this is how you ought to do it. I urge you, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all goodliness, sorry, godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God our Savior, who wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, a man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. This has now been witnessed to at the proper time. And for this purpose, I was appointed a herald and an apostle. And I am telling the truth, I am not lying, and a true and faithful teacher of the Gentiles. And then he's going to go and give more direction. 
He's going to talk about men and how they should pray and all these different things. But I, I, wanna, I, that, I don't think anybody struggles with that. So I want to talk about these verses here. Verse 11, a woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not, one, not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety or self-control. Now, when I just read that, <laughs> right, what, what are your initial thoughts, right? Because our thoughts can be, well, that's cultural, right? Which, which there are definitely some cultural things going on here that we're going to talk about. Right, so the cult, cultural things happening, and yet, like I said, he brings up the creative order. He brings up creation. So how do we do that? Unfortunately, I've seen these few verses here used as a mallet or a hammer to manipulate women into being that list that uh, Mary had list, listed there, right? Just a bobblehead, yes, and men do that, and I don't, I don't get a say in anything. That's not complementarianism. And that's, when you read this at face value, and I think there's a couple words in here that, that would be better translated and are translated differently in other passages of Scripture. Okay, so I want to look at that. But I know that depending on our background, right, this, you can read this and be super offended, or you can read this and say, yeah, that, that, that's my mom, right? I, I see my mom when I read this, right? So how, how, do we, how do we go about this? How do we read this passage? First off, like I mentioned before, this is only about marriage in the church, I believe, and I've preached on this a few times of separation of church and the state that I truly believe that women have every right to be in work or politics or CEOs or anything of that because it's not this passage. This passage, again, in context, is this, is our corporate gathering. And we can see that because this is not on every aspect because we see other women who, uh, who achieve a lot in Scripture. We can look at Lydia, the seller of purple, who's mentioned in Acts and in Philippians, one of the first converts of the early church. Lydia, the seller of purple, right? When you think about purple, we don't really think about it a whole lot. We just have it, right? Just buy purple, not a big deal, right? This is a, a royal robe, and it was incredibly difficult to dye things purple. They had these little snails, and they had to crush hundreds and thousands of them to dye to get the, their, their goo to be able to ferment it, and they would dip the robes in that, and that would dye it purple. And it was an incredibly expensive process. And I can tell you right now, Lydia wasn't the one that was doing the hard manual labor. She's not the one crushing it. She's not dealing with stinky dyeing animals and dipping cloth in there. She's not the one at the booth actually making the sale. She's in charge. How do we know that? Because she owns multiple properties throughout the Middle East. She is a wealthy CEO who tells other people, men and women, this is how you work, this is how you do this. And then when she's converted, it says that she and her household was saved. So she wasn't just some single successful individual. She was a mother most likely or had a family. So this was, again, within context is at the church. So let's look at quietness. What does this idea of quietness mean? A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. When we look at other uses of the word throughout Scripture, 2 Thessalonians says, Such persons were commended, or we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. 
right? It's, it's still working quietly. It's still doing something. There's still an action here that's happening, okay? So let, quietly, that's the word that's translated there. Uh, Chronicles 440, uh, they found rich and good pasture, and the land was very broad and quiet and peaceful, okay? Now, that's a different kind of quiet than we think, oh, women need to be quiet. Uh, again, 22.9, for his name shall be Solomon, and I will give you peace and quiet to Israel in his days. In Proverbs 11, whoever mocks a neighbor lacks sense. But a wise man remains silent. All right? Listen before you speak. And when we look at 1 Corinthians chapter 14, we're going we're gonna to see this passage uh, again in just a minute. Uh, I'm not going to spend the time reading all of that. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, it says that we need to learn in an orderly manner. Orderly, I really think, is a, is a, is a better way to, to interpret this word of order. Not out of control, not in chaos. And again, this is where culture actually does come in process. This is where when we look at the idea of women in the culture, uh, that they were not, a women were not allowed into these synagogues, most of them. That they came, would come in and, and it was just the men and the husbands would go home and they would teach their wives what they learned. That's not our culture anymore. And so now in the early church, women are allowed to come in and they probably have kids and it's just a little crazy, a little chaotic. And he said, we need to be quiet. We need to listen to the teaching of the word in an orderly manner. How about authority? Let's look at this. It says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. You can read that. And again, that's been manipulated to say a woman cannot do anything over a man within the house or at, uh, at the church. Well, when we look at this passage, even in 1 Corinthians 14, this uh, aspect of order, here's what I do know. Because we can take this and say it's a blanket statement. If there's ever a man, right? And a lot of churches do this, that if I'm teaching, if a woman is teaching, they can be in charge of the children and maybe the youth group, maybe. But once the men get old enough, women aren't allowed to teach that anymore. And they take that from this passage. A woman is not able to teach or assume authority over a man, but they can over children. All right, so again, let's look at that. 1 Corinthians 14 in order. Uh, we see that there are both men and women talking and praying and prophesying, and we can see this, that women elsewhere in Scripture are commended to be teachers of what is good for other women and co-workers, co-laborers among men. So this cannot be a total prohibition. This statement cannot be women just simply need to be quiet, keep their mouths shut, and they're never able to teach except they're teaching little kids. Like, it can't be that because we see this in other Places, specifically in Romans chapter 16, we see, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a deacon of the church in uh, that place. I ask you to receive her in the Lord in a way worthy of his people and to give her any help that she may need from you. For she has been the benefit of many people, including Paul. And then he says this, greet Priscilla and Aquila, my co-workers in Christ Jesus. Back then, especially within ancient Israel and, and the apostle Paul as a Hebrew, as he's writing this, there is significance in the order. Uh, Priscilla and Aquila are mentioned six times in scripture. Four of the six times, Priscilla's name is first. Priscilla and Aquila, that she is in some way leading and teaching, that she is a co-laborer, a co-worker in Christ Jesus with the apostle Paul. And then she goes on and she teaches the uh, Apollos, who's gonna be a first century pastor. And she trains him and instructs him and teaches him. And we see this in Acts uh, 18, that she teaches Apollos, right? So what does this idea of authority then mean? 
If we see women actually doing this work, even within the church, what does it mean to not teach with authority? Well, uh, lexicographers, lexicographers, lex, I always mess this up, lexic, lexicographers <laughs> are not in full agreement on what the word means, okay, this idea of authority. But general consensus is that the word means something like assume a stance of independent authority, okay? So a woman is not to assume a stance of independent authority to give orders to or dictate to men when it comes to, again, the corporate worship. Putting it all together in context, the corporate gathering, he says in verse 8, verse 1, and then plus the likewise women in verse 9. Okay, I'm going to come back to this idea of this corporate gathering in just a second. So the New Testament ascribes headship and shepherding authority in the church to qualified and ordained men. Qualified and ordained is key. Okay? And this isn't a slam on, on the other men in here who aren't pastors or, or elders. All right, this is, there are very clear qualifications to be an elder in Scripture. This is not just any man. I just did a wedding yesterday, and I stood there, right? And I talked to them both, and I was talking to, to, to Nikki, and I said, Nikki, when Scripture says in Ephesians 5 to submit to your husband, it doesn't mean any man. And you two get to work out what that looks like because Paul doesn't tell us what that means. He says, while the syntax and vocabulary leave some open questions, the sense is that the role of women in a context in which spiritual authority is being exercised is prohibited to women, and I would then add to that, which I should have uh, done, or unqualified men. So then... What are the guiding principles at Hope? Okay, so I'm, I'm going to talk about us here tonight, right? Like this, this corporate gathering. The spiritual covering and authority lies within the eldership of the church, and that is reserved for godly qualified men. All right, so, so the, uh, the authority of the elders of Hope Community Church, uh, as, as of right now at Lower Town, I'm the only elder here, but we have other elders from downtown that help in the spiritual guiding of our church. All right, what does that mean? That would mean our theology, writing papers uh, on, on, on a position that we would hold. This is teaching on a Sunday morning and exercising spiritual authority. That's it. I mean, they do other things, but I'm not saying like they don't do anything, but, but that's what it means. That it lies, with, it lies within godly qualified men and on a corporate Sunday gathering teaching with authority that I would say that the way that, that we teach from this pulpit, that when we speak, it is speaking with spiritual authority. And I would say that honestly, from this space right here is really the only time that we do that. That any other time that we gather among ourselves, it doesn't need to be an elder. If it requires the work of an elder, then, then it would be a man and an elder. So if there's any other time that's teaching or, or anything like that, then we can move on, okay? So let me keep going here. However, the governance, staffing, and ruling of the church needs to have godly qualified men and women. Uh, when we look at our organizational chart, the highest thing on our org chart is the governance team. And there are men and women on that. It does not require uh, in our organization to be a man in order to be on the governance team. Uh, when I want to and ask permission to hire somebody for Lower Town, I don't go to the elders because that has nothing to do with spiritual guidance. I go to the governance team and I say, can I hire this person? When we're setting our budgets and things like that, that all goes to the governance team. If it's not a spiritual matter, then it goes to the governance team. Then it goes to the executive elders and then it goes to the elders and then it goes to the pastors. 
And then it goes to the staff. Um, I think of Natty. You guys, a lot of you may know Natty Severson. Maybe some of you don't, but she's in charge of our small groups ministry. Um, when I was in LDI, I took a class from her. And unfortunately uh, for me, uh, you know, in my upper 20s, it was the first time that I had ever taken a class, a theology class or Bible class that was taught by a woman. And I, and I was trying to find some emails because it was almost every single week I would write Natty and I would say, holy cow, I'm such an idiot. <laughs> like you, you blew my mind today. And just from, from her seeing things as a woman, as a pastor, I needed her to teach me and instruct me on really simple things. Like you can't just give Bible. Every once in a while, you got to tell a story. Blew my mind. I mean that. Right? She, there's so many things about how I was taught by her that I would say was that that class impacted me more than I could probably honestly say than any seminary class or Bible class I've ever taken. It was unreal. Natty is a gifted teacher and communicator, even to her pastors. Because in that instance, in those classes, it's not exercising spiritual authority. I can disagree with Natty. But when Steve stands up and says, this is our view of predestination, and I say, I disagree, guess what? I'm out of a job. All right. Hopefully that's clear. I can talk more about that. If the job does not require an elder, then it is open to both men and women. This is governance team. This could be a Sunday school teacher, a worship leader, a finance team, or finance director, LDI instructor, small group leader, etc. I have a small group leader, co-leader with me who is a woman, and I love it when she leads. So I get a break, right? It's, I can sit under women's teaching because it's not our corporate Sunday gathering, okay? And we operate out of a place of conviction on this matter, but we have grace towards those who see it otherwise. I will say this. When I say we have grace to those who see otherwise, I have a lot of grace toward my egalitarian friends. This church that we meet in, First Baptist Church, is egalitarian. Sheila Albrand is a pastor of this church, and she is a, is a very good communicator. All right? I would honestly, honestly say this. If this church was more that traditional, that women have no place in any of this stuff, they can't take the offering, they can't pray from the pulpit, they can't read scripture, all that. When they're more that traditional thing, I would feel much more uncomfortable writing them a check every month for rent. So we have conviction on this, but there's grace towards those who see it otherwise. And we can get along with them. Finally, creative order. Is this finally? Nope. This is next. <laughs> Almost there. Creative order. You guys are sweaty as me. Whoo. I used to wear a Fitbit. I used to like walk miles every, every week when I would preach. It's unreal. All right. This is what Paul says. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not the one deceived, but it was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. Again, this could be used really inappropriately manipulative to say women are more easily deceived than men, therefore they shouldn't be in leadership. Clearly that's what Paul is saying here. <laughs> let's, let's look at this, okay? What this does not mean is that. It does not mean that Eve is less smart. What it does mean, simply is that Adam was created first. Okay, there's an order here. There's a God-ordained design for headship, for being first in the home, 
And as we see, what he's doing in this context is applying that to the church. Adam was formed first, then Eve. Design for headship. And again, this is not just a cultural thing for first century because he's going back to the creation. If, you, if, if, in, if in a couple of verses that Paul talks, if he doesn't go back to creation, it would be a whole lot easier to dismiss all of this as first century hulala. It's not a word. Bruhaha. I don't know what I'm trying to say. You know what I'm saying. But we can't do that because they, he goes back to the beginning. He goes back to Genesis and says, this is the way God designed it before sin even entered the world. That there's an order here. Adam was formed first, then Eve, period. Then he says, woman was deceived. That Eve was deceived after she was attacked with untruth from Satan. She was deceived that that's the serpent comes and says, did God really say you'll surely die if you eat of that fruit? Did you? you see, because I don't think God wants you to eat that because he knows once you eat it, you're going to be like him, knowing the difference between good and evil. Well, unfortunately, that was a little truth because human beings were never created to, dis- to decide what, what's the difference between good and evil. That's God's role. And we decided we want to choose for ourselves what's right and what's wrong. And that was the deception, that was the lie, that was the untruth that Eve was deceived with. But then it says that Adam was not deceived. Listen, that is not a commendation for Adam. This is condemning to Adam. 100%. Adam was not deceived. The woman was deceived and became a sinner. Adam wasn't deceived and he chose to become a sinner without deception. And Adam stands idly by while his wife is being manipulated and is being spoken to untruths and he's standing right there. Adam wasn't deceived and yet he chose to sin. This is a, a, an attack. This is a, a condemning statement. In other words, what Paul is saying is this is a breakdown in Adam's God-ordained responsibility to teach and to lead his wife in a loving and protecting way. Therefore, in a context of Sunday gathering, what Paul is saying, I believe in this passage, is that for a woman to teach with authority is an inversion. It's an inversion of the biblical creational authority and order. That's why Paul brings this up. Why, what's it matter if Adam and Eve were there? What does it matter of the story of Adam choosing to sin and Eve, Eve being deceived and then becoming a sinner because this is flipping the creative order on its head? It's an inversion of that. Then it says this kind of very obscure passage or verse that says that women will be saved in childbearing. And this is one, honestly, up until this week, I was like, I don't know what to do with this. <laughs> right? this, is, this is one of these, these verses that I've heard uh, spoken on that I, I was like, I, I, I don't, what are you talking about? Right? That you ha- like, so women have to have babies in order to be saved. That's not right. I know that's not accurate. Right? But then but, or people just skip over it. I was, I was listening to a pastor not that long ago preach this text, and they got to verse 15 and just literally just, next slide, we're just going to move on. All Scripture is profitable, okay? And I, and I think this is actually really beautiful when we understand what's going on here. It says this, but women, woman, singular, but the singular woman will be saved through childbearing if they, plural, continue in faith, love, and holiness with self-control. 
okay? And I think what Paul is doing here is he's echoing Genesis 3.15. And in Genesis 3.15, where it says that the seed of all women will be at enmity with Satan, that we, they will be at war with Satan, but then it shifts to the singular, just like Paul does here, and it says, but he, the seed, he will crush the head of the serpent, but the serpent will bruise his heel. It's what we call, and what people call, the, the first announcement of the gospel. First announcement of the, of the Messiah, of Jesus, crushing the head of the serpent, and here, Paul does the exact same thing. Again, he's just in Genesis. He just went back to the creation story. And here he goes back to that Genesis 3.15. And he says, but woman, this woman, Eve, will be saved through childbearing, the same way of having this seed. And I think in Genesis 1.15, when we get there, the verse right before the curse that I just mentioned and then this to follow, that she'll be saved. Salvation comes through childbearing in a redemptive, historical way when Jesus Christ is born. They, then, the Christian women, who in light of the gospel promise of Christ, as their line and their lineage and their descendants, men can't have babies. Can't do it. I was about to say I've tried, but that, that I haven't tried that. They, the Christian women, when in light of the gospel promise, are able to remain in faith, hope, love, and self-control rather than strive against their husbands as we see in the next verse in Genesis 3, 16, where it says that as a woman, that as a man, he will want to rule over his wife and she will desire him. And again, this isn't a good desire. This is a desire that wants to consume and destroy that it's ruling over and over and you and me and back and forth. And this, what he's saying here is that when we live under the gospel reality of Jesus Christ, that when we live in faith and love and holiness and self-control, rather than strive against their husbands and overturn the creation order. I want to end with Kathy Keller. No, nope, no, I'm not. Yeah, I am. Men and women, therefore, are complementary to one another, and both genders are necessary. Both are necessary that we need each other at the home and in the church and beyond that. Kathy Keller says this. This is Tim Keller's wife, pastor in, in New York. This is where Jesus comes in. This idea of complementarianism. This is where Jesus comes in. Jesus is the reason that you can trust that God's justice is behind your assigned gender role. Whether you are a man who would rather not take leadership or assume risk, or a woman who wishes she could. Both get to play the Jesus role. It takes both men and women, both image bearers, living out their gender roles in the safety of home and church to reveal to the world the fullness of the person of Jesus. It's a both and. So finally, men, you're not superior. Women, you are not inferior. And we need to understand that. We need to believe that. We should complement one another. And finally, let's look to Jesus' leadership and submission as an example of what it means to be a follower of Christ. That's what we should do. Just look to Jesus, who was God, did not think equality with God something to be grasped. And he sets his preference aside for his bride, 
the same way that men should for their wives. So, let's close in prayer. But before we do that, I want to talk about this beautiful table that we have over here and these elements that represent the body of Christ that was broken for us in his blood that was shed for our sins. That when we look at confusing passages like this, I pray that it will be covered with the grace of Jesus Christ. I say, man, I don't understand all this. It's quite confusing. It actually kind of makes me upset. I understand that. But I think that men, we ought to stick up and stand up for women in our culture, in our society, in our homes. And we should be able to do that because of what Christ did for them. He died for them. He loved them in a way that we struggle with. And so we look to this bread and we take this bread and we take this cup and we do this as often as we eat and drink in remembrance of what Jesus Christ did on that cross, instituting the sacrificial meal thousands of years ago. So will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I thank you for our time tonight in the Word. I thank you that we're able to open your word and, and, and maybe we come in here with, with different backgrounds and different understandings and this and I know that I only had uh, so much time to, to talk about this very complex topic. But God, I pray that regardless of, of even where we land on this spectrum, that we would be able to look to Jesus who is the author and the finisher of our faith to know that regardless of the position that we hold on this, it has nothing to do with our standing in Christ. That you have forgiven us of our sin. You have forgiven us of our, of our biases and inadequacies and our sin. It's all separated as far as the East is from the West. So God, I pray that as we take these elements, that you would be honored and glorified. That we as a church, as your body, would grow together to be closer to Jesus and that we would love you more and more because of your body that's represented by this broken bread and the juice that represents your blood that was shed for us. And so God, I pray now that as we sing, as we take these elements, that you would receive the praise and the honor and the glory that is due your name, that you are worthy of and you are the only one worthy of that. So God, we pray these things in your son's beautiful name of Jesus. Amen.